Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Okay, guys, I want to look at our um, talk talk a little bit about our Latin phrases and our uh, prefixes again. Uh, playtime, playtime came came through for me again. Playtime. Cindy uh, asked a question about nausea. Remember that? I think she said, what was that question she asked? Does anyone remember exactly what that question was? It had something to do with this word comes from uh, seasickness, and it means a a bad feeling in your stomach or something. It's talking about nausea, I think. Yeah, nausea. That's the word it was. And so... um, I want to just review with you in English because people make this mistake all the time in English. What's the difference in English between nauseous and nauseated? Nauseous would be the thing that makes you nauseated, like nauseous fumes, but nauseated is you feel the nausea. Right. So don't ever tell anyone I'm nauseous because if you do it, I'm making people sick. Like I'm making them puke. Say I'm nauseated. But uh, no one ever says I'm nauseated. They always say I'm nauseous. I know, but they're not supposed I know. to. I've never exactly. heard that. I've never heard that. Oh, I'm man, nauseous. we all kind of, I've seen people, I'm really nauseous. And I think, well, you're not making me puke yet. So it I drives me crazy when they say that. Yeah, they do. But anyway, now it comes from the Latin word for ship because on ships, of course, people got, get, still get seasick sometimes. And so uh, that's where the word comes from. Uh, then we had a phrase, ad nauseam. I hear this ad nauseam. When you pronounce it in English, it comes out more like ad nauseam. But it means to the point of disgust, to the point of nausea. Like you heard it so much, you're just sick and tired of it. Okay. And I thought a couple other quotes or phrases I would give you that are kind of interesting. This next one is one Julius Caesar supposedly said, alia yakta est. And by the way, your notes when I cleaned up the notes, it should be I-A-C-T-A, not I-A-C-T-A-T-A, yakta. Alia yakta est, meaning the die is cast. Julius Caesar said this right before, you know, he crossed with his army from Gaul into Italy. And by crossing with his army, that meant I'm declaring war on Rome. In other words, you weren't allowed to bring an army home as a as a as a uh, governor of a province you weren't allowed to bring your army home and if you did that was considered declaring war so when caesar did that it was like he said the die is cast i'm going to cross i'm going to take my army with me and i'm going to declare a war on rome and on pompey and he did and he won that war uh, but we sometimes talk about i'm crossing the rubicon meaning i'm at a difficult decision that i've got to make whether to do something or whether not to do it and that's called crossing the Rubicon. By the way, nobody knows where the Rubicon is. It's a river between Gaul and Rome, but really there is no river Rubicon. There's a little ditch. They think it's like a little tiny stream or a little ditch that he crossed. There really is no Rubicon River. Um, nobody knows exactly where it is today anyway. Um, okay, well, also I gave you this phrase. This is a good phrase for today. This is a very good phrase for today. Whatever side of the political aisle you might be on, I think you would agree this is a good phrase for today. Oh, tempora, oh, mores. That means, oh, the times, oh, the customs. 
meaning things are really different and getting out of hand. And that's said by Cicero. And if he said it then, what would he say now? That's a good question, right? Um, then I decided to give you just two fun little, uh, just two little fun little jingles to say, sort of, I guess you could say. These are a little bit. Mm-hmm. Question? No? Okay. These are a little bit like in English. Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, a peck of pickled peppers. Peter Piper picked, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Where's a peck of pickled peppers? Peter Piper picked. I don't to say that. Anyway, or like, uh, you know, six slim, slippery, slimy snakes slowly sliding southward. It's that sort of thing. Uh, there was an early Roman poet named Ennius, and he was just, he was one of the first Roman poets to write poetry uh, in Latin. And he tried all kind of weird things, and he, he kind of did things that later poets thought were too much, just took too, went too far. But he did it, and this is, these are two of his sayings. This first one goes, all tite tute tati, tibitanta tyranni tulisti. All tite tute tati, tibitanta tyranni tulisti. And it sounds like it really means a lot, but it doesn't. It simply means, oh, Titus Tatius, you tyrant, you have taken so many things for yourself. Uh, Titus Tatius was a king of a group called the Sabines, and for a little while he along with Romulus, ruled Rome jointly, and then they got rid of him, and uh, the Romans never thought too highly of him. And so that, that quote's just, just short, sort of showing you that. And I think all those T's are sort of to, dis- sort of to show disgust. Oh, tite, tute, tati, tante, tirane, tulisti. And then he had another one that he used to imitate the sound of the trumpet. This is a good example of what's called onomatopoeia, which means when you, like when you say bang, when you say crash, when you use words to indicate a sound. And so he had this one about the trumpet. Which means, and the trumpet said with a terrible sound, taratantara. <laughs> See, it's kind of funny to, to have a sound like that in Latin, but there it is. Like, you know, like we imitate the sound of guitars and things sometimes. You know, we might say ding, 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 or something. So, atuba terribly, sony tu taratantara dixit. So, they're just for fun. Just kind What's of that banjo? Twang, twang, twang. Yeah, yeah, same type of thing. What did you say? Uh, what did the last word mean? What's the first, what's that? At? But, but the because trumpet you said, said. Just now you said and, and it I'm says sorry, but. it's, it's, it's but. But the trumpet said with a terrible sound, taratantara. Or if you want to say it different, but the trumpet said taratantara with a terrible sound. You could say it either way. But that had never been done in Latin poetry before. And that's, uh, you know, that's why we did. Okay. I thought you might like to review the Greek alphabet since we're doing Greek prefixes. Remember, alpha, beta, gamma, delta. And it's easy if you say it in fours. Alpha, beta, gamma, delta. Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theta, Iota, Kappa, Lambda, Mu, Nu, Xi, Omicron, Pi, Rho, Sigma, Tau, Upsilon, Phi, Chi, Psi, Omega. Now, and let's uh, sing our song. Remember, I'm going to sing it, then you're going to sing it, but but you might want to mute if you're really going to sing, because it'll sound horrible if you don't. It goes like this. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theta. Iota, Kappa, Lambda, Mu, 
Nuke Psy, Omicron Pi. Rho Sigma Tau Upsilon. Phi Chi Psi Omega. There we go. Let's do it one more time. Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. Epsilon, Zeta, Eta, Theta. Iota, Kappa, Lambda, Mu. Nuke Psi, Omicron Pi. Rho, Sigma, Tau, Upsilon. Phi, Chi, Psi, Omega. All right, there we are. That's the Greek alphabet. Uh, and now you know why from the alpha to the omega means from A to Z, like from the beginning to the end. Now, last week we had a few uh, Greek prefixes. We're going to have about three more of them today. Uh, and you, you might see these sometime. The first one is kata or cat. And it means down, against, very, badly, completely. And I just thought of a, a, a one that I didn't put in here that, that would come from this, and that is catalog. You know, a catalog is like listing down all the things that you have for sale. The, the log part is word or say, and the kata is down. Catastrophe. The word strophe means a turning, and a catastrophe is a turning down, like a turning bad, something going wrong, that kind of thing. And in biology, if you remember some of you that had biology, one of the terms you might have learned was catabolism. Remember last week we said metabolism, anabolism, and catabolism. If I'd known Greek when I had this, I would have made it a lot easier. Metabolism is all the processes in the body, all the chemical processes. The ones that are catabolism are the ones that tear down, that take things down, you know, like digestion and things like that. Uh, that tear the food down. Anabolism, which we had last week, Anna, is building up. If you know these prefixes, it can kind of help you remember those words. Catholic. Uh, that word is confusing. Uh, when you hear that word Catholic, you usually think of the Catholic Church. And that's because uh, at one time in the world, the Catholic Church was the only, the universal church. It was the only church that existed. And the word means universal, all, and that's why they called it that. And then after the Reformation, there were a whole bunch of different churches. But that's why in the Apostles' Creed, if any of you remember saying that, it says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. And it doesn't mean you believe in the Roman Catholic Church. It means you believe in the church universal. And that cat, one of the meanings of cat was completely, and that's where you get that from. We had a lady in our church one time, she didn't understand that word. And every time they would say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, she would yell out, Christian, real loud, <laughs> real loud, because she didn't want to be thought of as believing in the Catholic Church. So. And a cathode. Now, this is a little confusing. You know the difference between a cathode and an anode? You know what a cathode is? Positive charge. Yep. It's in science, we learned that a cathode tube is like an electron gun. It shoots electrons out or down or away from. So, a, so an anode receives electrons, as my understanding is, and a cathode releases electrons. Uh, that's about as technical as I can get uh, for you. Maybe somebody else knows more about it than I do. So if you do, you can you can chime in. Dia. 
Dia or D. This is a good one in English. It means through, across, between, apart, throughout. And we get words like diameter. If only I had known in lower grades the difference between, I used to get mixed up between circumference and diameter. If you know the Greek and the Latin, you got it. Diameter is the measure through. And so the diameter means you're measuring from one side of the circle all the way through to the other. A measuring through is what that means. Uh, diocese. A diocese is um, a division of the Catholic Church or of the church where that, that particular bishop has control through over that area. Um, and then one we may have heard, diaphanous. If something is diaphanous, it is, by the way, there's, there should be a space after the S there. Diaphanous means you can see through it. You can see through it. And diaspora, does anyone know what the diaspora is? The diaspora, anyone ever heard of that term? It means the scattering of the Jews. That is after uh, Jerusalem was destroyed and so forth, the Jews, the diaspora, they were scattered into all different places. Uh, uh, dis, dis means badly, disordered, difficult. Um, and we get the word dysentery. If you have dysentery, that's a, that's a fancy way of saying diarrhea. Uh, your insides are not functioning right. You're having difficulty with your insides, I guess. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Sh 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 Chanel isn't here because she had asked about this word and I had messed up on it before dyslexia. It's not D I S it's D Y S meaning difficulty reading. And uh, dysplasia, by the way, that should be S-I-A, not Y. I didn't understand my, my echo speech. Um, that means displacement. Uh, something is out of place, like dogs sometimes get hip dysplasia. And dis, uh, disconnect, dyskinesis means a difficulty moving a particular part of your body. Uh, and Ninette thought of another one. I can't think now what it was. Uh, oh, there's another one, dyspeptic. If you're dyspeptic, it means you've you got a problem with your digestion. Uh, the peptic part is where you get Pepto-Bismol and pep and all that. You have trouble with your digestion, so it makes you irritable. So it's a fancy way of saying irritable. You're dyspeptic. Uh, ek or ex, out of, of. And we get the word uh, ectopic. What is an ectopic pregnancy? Outside the womb. Right. It happens, for example, in the tube. Ninette had an ectopic pregnancy once, and it's very dangerous because it can kill you if you don't. Uh, it can be very dangerous. Um, exodus, the road out, the road away. And that, that actually, the hodus, the odus part is Greek, meaning road, and the ex part is out. And that looks a lot like Latin because, you, you know, X in Latin means out of, too. So some of these prefixes mm -hmm. are very similar. And you can see the influence of, of Greek on Latin. Uh, Greek influenced Latin a good bit. NML means into, in, on. You get energy. Uh, that should say E-N-E-R-G-Y. Energy, that's, you know, uh, in, in work, it has to do, the, the 
the urgy part has to do with work and the N, I guess it's so it's like the ability to work. An emblem, an emblem is something that's put on something, uh, you know, like a brand name. An ellipse is a geometric figure, but that's as far as I'm going because I am not an expert on geometry by any means. Uh, Any questions on these prefixes for this week? You'll notice that these words we're looking at with these prefixes are much more difficult. They're much more scientific or specialized. They're not words that you might see that often. Um, And a lot of times you might not know the root that these prefixes are used with. I don't know some of these roots as well as I should. Uh, So the, the Greek is much more specialized, you might say, than the Latin was. All right, let's look at our exercises, our homework. Now, last week we talked about commands. We talked about the imperative. How do you make a singular command in in a first conjugation verb? Who can tell me that? You only have two forms, singular commands, plural commands. How do you make a singular command for a first conjugation verb? I did not review this with you in this lesson. I figured if you needed help, you could look back at the previous lesson. Add an E. Okay. All right. Well, you take your infinitive, which is going to end in R-E usually, and drop it. Drop it. Whatever is left, pretty much that's going to be your singular command. So like in first conjugation, it's going to be an A. In second conjugation, it's going to be an E. Third conjugation, it's going to be an E. Fourth conjugation, it's going to be an I. So like, Ama, wide, etc. Now, to make the plural, simply add te to it. So, amate, wide, te. Now, in third conjugation, it's the weird conjugation. The e changes to an i before you do that. In uh, fourth conjugation, it already has an i, so you just add the te. Um, that's all it is to it. It's not too hard. And the negative commands are easy. All you do is go no leap or nolite, noli or nolite, plus the infinitive. So really, when you make a negative command in Latin, what you're saying is noli means be unwilling to. So what you're really saying is be unwilling to do whatever it is that you're doing. All right, let's look at these little exercises and see how we do with these. Uh, Number one says laudas magistrum ana. Laudas magistrum ana means you are praising the teacher, Anna. We're changing it to say praise the teacher, Anna. So what what change do we have to make to do that? Lauda. Yeah, lauda magistrum ana. Very good. All right. So L-A-U-D-A, in other words. Number two, semper legem vides irate. That's from one of our basic sentences. What's that sentence mean as it is? Semper legem vides irate. Always read what you see. Remember, legs videt iratum, iratus legem non videt. So what did legs videt iratum mean? Or what did iratus legem non videt mean? It meant... The angry man, right? So, so, a angry man. You always see the law. That's what it means. You always see the law, angry man. All right, now we're going to change it to say, angry man, see the law. Always see the law. 
what do we do? It is. Uh-huh. We got we days now. Wait, we we day we day. That's it. We, we day. day. Yeah, semper legem we day. Irate. Good. Why is irate written like with an e instead of iratus? Why do we do that? Evocative. Yep. Direct address. Remember when you directly address somebody, especially if it's a U.S., drop the U.S. and add an e. In the other declensions, it's just like the nominative. Okay. Um. There's a, I thought I heard a little confusion, and I probably had it too, with that word legem, because it looks a lot like something else. Oh, it looks like lego, legere to read, but I don't know. Have we had that word? I don't know if we have. Anyway, I'm this having word, an Italian interference oh, problem there. This word means the law. This word means the law. It's where you get legal, legislative, all that kind of stuff from. Lex. Lakes is the, lakes is the nominative form. Legem is the accusative form. Okay, serpente puelas non teratus. Now, what does that sentence mean as it is? Now, you didn't have to translate these, but if you know the meaning, it won't hurt you. What does that mean? Serpente puelas non teratus. You are not frightening the girls with the snake? Yep, you are not frightening the girls with a snake. All right. What you want to say is don't frighten the girls with a snake. How do we say don't frighten the girls with a snake? And it's plural. Now it's a plural command. Non terere. No, no yeah. terete. No. Nolite terere. Oh, I forgot so, about no Serpente lite. puelas nolite, N-O-L-I-T-E, terere. See, what he's really saying is, be unwilling to scare the girls with a snake. That's what it really saying. No, what's that? Nolite what? T-E-R-R, long E-R-E, just like the infinitive. So for these negative commands, just use noli or nolite plus the infinitive. All right. Portas kibamad mensam dawe. What does that mean? That was from our story last carries week. carries the food to the table. Yeah. You are carrying You're food carrying to the, the table. table. Dawes. Yeah. Now you want to say carry food to the table. Dawes. So it'd be porta. Yep. Porta kibum ad mensam dawe. All right. And five. Finitimis non no case. That sentence means don't harm your neighbors. I mean, I'm sorry, you are not harming your neighbors. Now we're going to change it to say, don't harm your neighbors. No, li. no, okay. Yeah, no, li. no, 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 why is that dative? Dative with special verb. Remember, no K-O is a verb that takes the dative of its so, object instead of the accused. We had a whole list of them. So uh, that's that plural? What? Finitimis? What did you just? No, no, no. No case. I'm sorry. Did I say no case? No case. Yeah, no, no case. You said no. The uh, no, no K, no. No li, no li, no care. No li, no care. 
Oh, that's right. It's the infinitive. Okay. Yeah, it's the infinitive. Okay. All right. Then we had some little short sentences. Now, I wanted you to try to write these in, in Latin. I mean, in, in the Latin word order as much as you could. Now, one thing I didn't tell you about Latin word order, try to put the vocative, not the first word in the sentence. In English, we often like to say things like, Quintus, love your mother. In Latin, they, they almost never put the vocative as the first word in the sentence. Almost never. It's often the second word. So how do we say, love your mother, Quintus? Amen tuam matram quintus. Yes, ma'am. Very good. Ama tuam matram quinte. By the way, you don't have to have tuam. You can have it. You don't need it. You can have it if you want to emphasize your ama matrem quinte. Very good. Uh, uh, was that you, Moosey? You got your accusative. That was yeah, good. Yeah, that was yeah. Good. I had I had that in high school. No, did you? Well, you, you knew your accusative. That was good. Please your father, Marcia. Um, please. Remember placebos. Oh, placebo, yeah. That's the word. Remember a placebo is a pill they give you to please you? So placebo to um, Padre Marshi. No, that's actually, it's the same as the nominative because it's not a U.S. It ends in A, so it's the same. Marquia doesn't change. Now, plaque, well, and, and with the commands, the verbs do often come first. Uh, in commands, they do. You can you can put them last. You can put them first. With the commands, it's not quite as strict. Uh, plaque. Now, this verb plaqueo takes the dative because it's a dative with special. Uh -huh. So plaque patri, Marquia. Uh, plaque patri. There we go. All right, three. Don't don't scare your sister, Publius. Ah, oh, here's this one we all love. These negative commands. Noli, noli, terare, sororem, good, noli, terare, sororem, publi, P-U-B-L-I, noli, terare, sororem, publi, good job, and spare the proud, Julius, spare is parco. Parco, parker. And that's another one of these words that take the dative. So, parque super, uh, superbos. I'm sorry, wrong. Parque superbis, Yuli. Mm. No, that looks like a girl's name, but it's but it's a guy's name. Uh, Yulia would be Yulia if you read the bottom. Parque superbis, Yuli. And last of all, bring me some door mice, Lydia. <laughs> um, Porta. Porta? Uh-huh. Um, Meo. No. To now, me. Real All right. Is it May? It's no. That means bring me. If you say Porta May, you're saying bring me. That is, me take me and take me somewhere. What you're really saying is bring to me, right? Yes, mehi. So me Porta Mihi or fair mehi. Glearace. Glieres, G-L-I-R-E-S. Glieres, Ludia. Y'all better learn to say that because I know y'all want dormice for dinner tonight. I know you do. Um, 
Now, uh, okay, any questions? And the, uh, the um, for this week, for this coming week, you have a story to read, which is a pretty good story. It's pretty long. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. It's another story about our family that we're reading about. And uh, it's, uh, it's, and if you like dogs, you'll really like this story. I think I, I sort of patterned it on my dog, <laughs> on the way he acts. Um, but anyway, uh, let's talk about the Trojan War a little bit. What time is it, uh, Terry? Okay, it is now, Gary, um, 4.30. Okay, good. We, that'll give us plenty of time to... So you still want me to give you the 20 minutes of no, morning? No, no, you don't have to. That's that, usually I'll just give I you the go, two minutes of. That's usually when I do the mythology. That's why. Okay. So we're, we're done All a right, little I'll bit All right, I'll just give earlier. you the two minutes of then. I thank you. I thank mm -hmm. you. Now, when we left off with the Trojan War, the, the Greeks were, some of the Greeks were in the Trojan horse. The Trojan horse was sitting outside of Troy. And the Trojans were trying to decide what to do. And you remember the Greeks, to make sure that the Trojans brought this horse into the city, they stationed a man on site to convince the Trojans that they had to bring the horse into the city. And that was not going to be an easy thing to do because this horse was a great big thing. And in order to bring it in, you're going to have to tear your walls up. And that's pretty serious because nobody in the ancient world wanted to open their city to just anyone and the walls would be a guard for it. So um, this guy's name is Sinon and he tells a story which has some truth to it, but which is mostly a pack of lies. Now, what he basically says is, first of all, he pretends to be a fugitive from the Greeks. He pretends that the Greeks were trying to kill him because he says that he had fallen foul of Ulysses for uh, a reason that I'm not going to go into now. He had gotten on the bad side of Ulysses, and so Ulysses convinced the Greeks, convinced the, the, the guy Caucus, who's the Greek priest, to say that the Greeks had to do a sacrifice. They did a sacrifice when they came to Troy, Iphigenia. They got to do another sacrifice to leave Troy, and guess who the guy was that got picked to do the sacrifice? Sinon. That's what he tells them. That's all a bunch of bunk. But that's what he tells them. He and Ulysses were friends. He was a cousin of Ulysses. That's what he tells them. And so right away, they get sympathetic to him because they figure, well, you, you, you know, you're, you've run away from the Greeks. The Greeks wanted to kill you, and you've run away from them. So you, you're probably going to tell us the truth because we're going to give you a home. We're going we're to provide you a home, so you'll be, you'll be faithful to us. So they say, okay. What about this horse? What's this horse doing out here? He said, well, here's what happened. He said, you guys had a thing called the Palladium, which was in your city, which was in your fortress of your city, which guarded Troy. Everybody knew this statue it was a little statue of Athena. This statue guarded Troy. And as long as that statue was in Troy, Troy could never be taken. So before the Greeks left, Ulysses and another guy named Diomedes got into the city by being in disguise. They got up into the fortress. They managed to steal the statue and they managed to take it to the Greek camp. So that's a big blow to the Trojans because now they've lost their trophy. However, Sinon tells them a lie now. He says, 
that statue was unhappy because they touched it with bloody hands. And so when it was in the Greek camp, it jumped up and down and banged its spear on its shield, showing displeasure. Well, maybe jumping up and down and banging a shield on a spear could show joy too. But anyway, he said, so the Greeks screwed up because they offended Athena when they took this statue. They really didn't, by the way, but that's what he says. And so he says, if you guys want to get in, they built this horse as a Thanksgiving offering, as a, as a makeup offer, as a propitiation. They built this horse to make up for the screw up they did when they stole this statue. And therefore, if you take this horse into your city, your city will be prosperous and you will conquer all of Greece. But if you, if you hurt the horse in any way, then the Greeks will come back and take you over. Barely had he finished telling this story. Remember earlier I told you there was a guy that said, don't take the horse into the city at all. And he threw a spear at it. Well, these great big snakes come up on the shore and go right to that guy, grab him and kill him and kill his kids. And so this convinces the Trojans that what they should do is take the horse into the city because it'll be to their good. It'll be like a, it'll be like a shield for them. It'll be like a guard for them. And so they tear the walls up and they put ropes around the horse and they bring it into the city. And two things could have prevented them from doing it should have prevented them from doing it, but the gods have kind of blinded their minds too. So they go ahead and do this. One thing that should have kept them from doing it as they were taking the horse into the city, they jostled it a bit and it rattled. You could hear the sound of metal inside of it, which means they should have said, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's in there? And if they'd opened it up, they would have seen a whole bunch of soldiers in there, but they didn't, they kept going. Second thing that should have kept them from doing it is there was a lady in Troy whose name was Cassandra. Cassandra was a daughter of the king of Troy, daughter of Priam. And she, she had uh, been beloved by the god Apollo. Apollo had fallen in love with her. But since she wasn't um, too interested in being in love with him, he said, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you the gift of prophecy. But I'll also curse you in that You'll have the gift of prophecy, and everything you say is true, but no one will ever believe you. And so, as the horse was coming in, she tells the Trojans, you're going to be conquered. This horse has got men in it. You shouldn't be bringing it in, but they don't pay any attention because she always tells them stuff they don't believe. And so, they bring the horse in, put it up in the citadel, put it up in the fortress of the city. They have a great big party. They get rip-roaring drunk because they think all their troubles are over and they fall asleep. By the way, it's, it's really sick because they say, as this horse is coming into the city, these little kids are coming up and they're, they're, they're happy if they can touch the ropes that are bringing the horse in with their hand. They, they think it's that great a thing. If they touch it, they'll be helped. And they're singing songs, dancing around it. They're so happy to bring this horse into the city because they think it's going to be their guard, their salvation. And they bring it in. As I said, they have a rip-roaring party. They fall asleep. And guess what? When it's midnight, what happens? Sinon, that's the guy that got him to bring the horse in. He's still at, he's still at large, right? He's, he's a Trojan now. But what does he do? 
He gives a signal with some fires. The Greeks are nearby. They're on an island that they can't be seen from Troy. They're nearby. They see the fire. They know everything's clear. They come back in the dead of night. They bring their ships back, park back up on the beach where they've been all these years. They get out. They come up. Meanwhile, Sinon opens the horse, lets the guys that are in the horse out. The guys that are in the horse come up and open the gates of the city. And when the Trojans wake up the next day, the city is in flames. And Aeneas tells that he's, he was asleep. He was in his father's house asleep. He heard this noise. He didn't know what the noise was. He gets up, goes out, sees all these flames, hears all these noise, and he finds out that the Greeks have gotten in and that they're taking over the city. And then from the rest of the story is really told from his point of view. He tries to defend Troy. He gets together with some men and they try to defend Troy as best they can, even though the, the odds are horrible because the Greeks were called, I mean, the Trojans were called totally unprepared, totally unprepared. And uh, we're just slaughtered. Um, but Aeneas and his men uh, fight for a little while, and then they get the idea, let's disguise ourselves as Greeks, and then we can, the Greeks won't know who we are, and we can, we can really get them. Well, the problem with that is it worked all right, but some of the Trojans don't know who they are and think they're Greeks and fight against them. Some, some Trojans are killed by Trojans because they don't know that they're really Trojans. They think they're Greeks. And so finally Aeneas... Uh, gets together, gets, gets to Priam's palace, gets to the palace of the old king. He gets up on the roof. He tries to defend Troy from up there, throwing stuff down. But he sees a horrible sight. He's, and this, this sight that he sees is in Hamlet. There's a, there's a part of Hamlet, and I've never read Hamlet, but my students told me this is a part, if they read the Aeneid, they always understood this part of Hamlet first. And that is the old king of Troy, he's a very old man. He can't fight anymore, but when he sees Troy under attack, he puts on his arm and he gets ready to fight. But his wife, being smarter than he is, as women often are, says, what are you doing? You can't, if Troy can't be defended by the Trojans, by, by, by the men, if it can't be defended by, by my son, Hector, you can't defend it. Come on over here to this altar and sit down with me. We can die together or we can be together at least. And so she pulls him over to the altar and he sits down with her but meanwhile a very villainous greek whose name is pyrrhus who's the son of achilles uh comes out and one of priam's sons is being chased by pyrrhus and pyrrhus catches him and kills him right in front of his parents now he doesn't mean to do that he doesn't plan to kill him there it just happens but Priam gets angry and basically says, you're not like your father was. Your father was nice to me. You killed my son right in front of me, which is really a, a sacrilegious thing to do. And he kind of calls him. He says, you're not really Achilles' son. You're right. In, in effect, he says, you're a bastard. You're an illegitimate kid. And in those days, that was fighting words when you said that. And so Pyrrhus says, well, I'll tell you what, go down to the underworld and tell my father how bad I am then. And he grabs the old guy by his, by his hair, pulls him over to the altar, and the poor old guy is slipping in his own son's blood as he's going. He pulls him over to the altar, puts his head on the chopping block, and chops his head off, kills him. And that act is just 
one of the horrible acts in the Aeneid. And when Aeneas sees it, he suddenly uh, just realizes that he had better go back to his own home and defend his own home. He's been out here trying to defend Troy, but what about his wife and his child? So he goes, gets ready to go back home. But meanwhile, he sees Helen and Helen is kind of cowering because she's afraid to go back to the Greeks and she's afraid of the Trojans who now think it's all her fault. And so she doesn't quite know what to do. And Aeneas sees her and he's about to kill her. He figures, let her, I'm going to kill her. I don't like to kill a woman. This woman needs to die. She's caused all this trouble. But meanwhile, his mother, who is the goddess Venus, appears to him and basically says, don't blame Helen for this. The gods are causing this attack, just like Troy. You see all these guys fighting, but I'm going to give you a special vision, and you're going to look and see the gods are also fighting against Troy. It's a little bit like that part in the Bible where, um, where Elisha is given a chance to see angels who are fighting on his side. I don't know if you remember that part in uh, Second Kings, but he gets to see these angels fighting. And I think it says there are more on our side than those who are against us. And that's sort of the same thing that Aeneas gets to see, a, a heavenly vision of all the forces that are fighting against Troy. So he gives up and he goes home and he tells his family, let's get ready. We've got to get out of here. We're going to run to the hills. We're going to, we're going to go up and get away from Troy. But guess what? His father won't leave. His father won't go. His father's an old, old, old man, crippled. He says, I'm not going. I've been in Troy all my life. I'll just stay here and die. So Aeneas gets frustrated. So he puts on his armor and gets ready to go back out and fight in the city again. But his wife comes up and says, don't leave us. Defend this place. Don't leave us. And she, it says she filled the whole house with her voice. She must have really put up a fit. So Aeneas doesn't know what to do because his father won't leave, but he knows he can't defend this house, uh, really. I mean, if the Greeks come in, he, he's not going to be able to keep them out. He doesn't know what to do. All of a sudden, they're, the kid, their little boys standing between them, all of a sudden his, his head catches on fire. He sees these flames coming out the top of his son's head. He can't they can't, they don't hurt you. If you touch them, they don't burn you, but they look like fire and they won't go out. If you put water on them, they still burn. And when Aeneas's father sees this, he says, okay, okay, I'll go. I'll go with you. I realize now I'm meant to go. And uh, so he, and they get the fire put out. I mean, it didn't hurt his son at all. And so Aeneas carries his father on his shoulders holds his son by his hand and asks his wife to follow them as they leave. And that was a big mistake because in all the hurry of getting out of the city, they run into some Greeks. They have to run. His wife gets left behind. And when they get to mm -hmm. outside the city, he, his wife is gone. And so Aeneas says, what God didn't I curse when I found that out. And so he leaves his father and his son with some friends and he goes back into the city and tries to find his wife and he walks around and he sees how the city is just in total destruction. And finally a ghost of his wife appears to him. And basically she says, I was not meant to accompany you into wherever you're going to go. Uh, but don't worry, I am dead and I will not have to be a Greek woman's slave. And you are not meant to have me when you get 
where you're going to go, you'll have another bride and take good care of our son. And that's the last thing that she says. He tries to embrace her and she just flees from his embrace. She's a ghost now. And so he goes back out and that is another whole story. The next time we meet, we will talk about the homecomings. We will talk because Troy is done. Troy is finished. Um, and there is an interesting play, if you want to read it, called, well, it's, it's, no, it's not really interesting. It's pretty horrible. It's called The Trojan Women. And all it shows you are these, these women waiting to find out who they're going to be given to as their slaves uh, and uh, what's going to happen to them in their future. And it's in this play where the little baby, Hector's little baby, is taken to the top of the palace and thrown off the battlements because he, you can't let a king's son live if it's in a conquered city can't do that so uh it makes the greeks look pretty bad look like pretty pretty you know uh difficult unkind people um but anyway troy is done troy has fallen and the rest of this story is about the various leaders homecomings both on the greek side and on the Trojan side. And this is kind of interesting because, you know, you would expect they've been gone for 10 years fighting the Trojan War, and you would think they'd just turn around and go home, and there'd be no problem. And they didn't have any trouble getting to Troy except for having to sacrifice Iphigenia. You would think they could just go home, right? But guess what? They can't. They have trouble. Uh, almost in every case, they have trouble getting back home. Uh, and some people think that the reason for this is historical. Some people think that what happened around the time of the Trojan War, this is almost the end of what's called the heroic age. And sometime around this period of history, Greece is invaded by the Dorians. And the Dorians come in and overtake the civilization that had been in control during the Trojan War. And so this may be a mythological way of showing that when these people got home, they probably found their palaces taken over by the invading army, and it probably was really a difficult thing to deal with, and maybe some of them didn't even make it home. Maybe some of them died, you know, so maybe this is a mythological way of showing how things in history were really pretty difficult. Does this all make sense? It's a, it's a difficult story. It isn't Edith Hamilton. You all have your Edith Hamilton book. And you can read it. It's all in there um, about the Trojan War. And I think what we'll do next week, maybe, we'll review. Uh, we'll review. I'll give you a little review uh, thing uh, that we can do on the Trojan War, just to, just to get it straight. First of all, let me ask you this. Do you remember? Is there, was there really a Trojan War or not? Do you remember? It was a long time ago when we talked about this. Was there really a Trojan War? I think so. All right. There was really a war between the city of Troy and Greece. There was really a war, but it probably wasn't over Helen. It was probably over something very boring like trading rights. But in, in mythology, it was more interesting to come up with a story about Helen. Um, and you remember who was the guy that proved that there really was a Trojan War? What was his name? Schliemann. Yes, Heinrich Schliemann. Remember, he was a German businessman, very wealthy, kind of a nut. 
And uh, he went over there and dug. He had, nobody had ever thought of digging down in the ground. Nobody had ever thought of, of archaeology. Nobody had ever thought of trying to explore ruins until him. And he went and he did it. He wasn't even a, a Latin scholar, although he loved Greek. Uh, he wasn't even a Greek scholar in the sense that he, you know, he liked Greek, but he really wasn't a, uh, he really wasn't a, 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 you know, scholar. But he went over there and did that and found not only one city, but remember, he found about 10 cities all buried one on top of the other. And uh, but in the, in the city that he thought really was Troy really wasn't Troy. Probably it was a different one, but at least he started the whole thing. And uh, so he's kind of like the father of archaeology. Now, where is Troy? Do you remember that? Where is Troy? Turkey? Yep, Turkey. Uh, Asia Minor. We, it's often in, in the ancient world, it's called Asia Minor, but it's Turkey. Yeah, it's right across, uh, right across from Greece. Um, and you remember what supposedly caused the Trojan War? I mean, not trading rights, according to the myth. What happened, basically? We have a little time to review this today. What happened? Paris stole Helen. Yes, a Trojan prince named Paris stole a Greek married woman named Helen. Why did he want Helen? <laughs> Like look, look, look like to me, she kind of was a trouble, man. What do you want with her? The most beautiful woman in the world, Titus. Yes, she was the most beautiful woman in the world. And so he was, uh, because he picked Venus as the most beautiful goddess, she said, if you pick me, I'll give you the most beautiful woman in the world as your wife, never mind that she's already married. And so <laughs> when he took her, all of Greece came to defend her husband and to help him get her back. And that really was the cause of the Trojan War. That's really what caused it. And remember, they all go over to, uh, they will all go to Troy. Uh, the face that launched a thousand ships. Remember that uh, quote from, I think mm -hmm. it's a bread song even. Uh, in the face that launched a thousand <laughs> ships, whatever. Anyway, that, when, that, when you hear that, the, the face that launched a thousand ships, is Helen. Her face is, is what did it. They all go to Troy. And <clears throat> you remember that they had to make a sacrifice in order to get to Troy because uh, they, uh, the winds wouldn't blow. Remember the, the leader? Who is the leader of the Trojan of the Greeks? I'm sorry. Who's the leader of the Greeks? Who's leading this expedition? Menelaus. No. No. No, Menelaus is, yes. Menelaus is the guy that was Helen's husband. Okay. Uh, but he's not the highest king. His brother, Agamemnon, is the high king. And so Agamemnon uh, is, the, is the first leader. Menelaus would be like second in command. Now, who else was on the Greek side? Do you remember anyone else? Ulysses. Yep. And what do we know? What do we know about Ulysses? What do we what do we think when we think of him? He's what character smart. He was smart. smart. They're cunning, very clever, very smart, very shrewd. And by the way, his name is Ulysses in Latin, but in Greek, he's called something else. You remember the other name? Odysseus. Odysseus. Yeah. So he sometimes is called Odysseus. 
and sometimes he's called Ulysses. Um, okay, so we have Agamemnon, we have Menelaus, we have Ulysses, and we have one other guy that's pretty well known on the Greek side. Achilles? Achilles. Achilles, swift of foot, they call him. Uh, what do we know about Achilles? He didn't want to fight, and Patroclus wore his armor in the battle. Okay. Why didn't he want to fight? Was he a coward? No, um, hmm. no, he was he was a very brave. In fact, well, before we talk about that, what other characteristic did Achilles? He's called Achilles Swift of Foot, but what other characteristic did he have? He had another characteristic. His weak spot was his heel. Yeah. Okay. His heel was his vulnerable spot. Uh, remember that his heel was where he could be wounded. Because his mother, who was a goddess, a minor goddess, tried to make him immortal. And so she dipped him in the river Styx, but she had to hold him by something. And she held him by one heel. And that part didn't get dipped. And so that part was not immortal. And that's the part that's going to cause his death. Uh, so he is kind of like a minor. He's, he's not a god, but he's kind of got some characteristics of a god. He's a great fighter. He's also kind of a mama's boy. Um, of course, if my mama was a goddess, I'd probably be a mama's boy, too. I'd be asking her all kind of stuff. But uh, anyway, he's kind of a mama's boy. Whenever something goes wrong, he prays to her, cries to her, and she, you know, tries to help him. Uh, uh, but anyway, why didn't he fight? He didn't fight because he thought he had been insulted by the Greeks. Remember, Agamemnon had to give his girl that he had captured back. Because her father was a priest and the Greeks were having a plague. And so uh, he said, if I have to give mine back, I'm taking somebody else's girl. And you and Achilles had kind of lipped off to him a little bit, mouthed off to him. And so he said, I'll take yours then. And so Achilles said, well, if you take mine, I'm not going to fight anymore. So he took her and he made up for it. He said, I'm not fighting. The Trojans start, the Greeks started to lose. And so it's then that Achilles' friend, Patroclus, fights and gets killed by Hector. And this so infuriates Achilles that he decides he will fight after all. He goes in and ends up killing Hector. But the war still doesn't end until the Trojan horse episode. Even though their great leader is dead, uh, they still can't. The Greeks still cannot take Troy. Still cannot uh, take it. By the way, let's talk about leaders on the Trojan side. Now, on the Greek side, we said Agamemnon, Menelaus, Achilles, uh, Ulysses, or Odysseus. On the Trojan side, okay, who's the old king of Priam, the one that gets killed that I talked about today? What's his name? Priam. Priam, exactly. Priam, Priam had 50 sons and 50 daughters, supposedly. Uh, very wealthy king, very rich king, but he's very old at this point. Now, who's his best known son and really the leader of Paris. the Trojan. I'm sorry. Paris? No, Paris. Yes. Paris is his son, but he's not much of a fighter. He's, he's, he's a lover. He's not a fighter. He's Hector. the guy that stole Helen. Yes. Hector. Hector is the, is the real oh, yeah. leader of the Trojan to this point. He's also a very likable character. He's a character that you, that you admire, that you can agree with. And yet he's the one that's going to die. And that's kind of typical, isn't it? 
the guy you always like is the guy that dies. And Achilles <laughs> ends up killing him and then dragging his body around the walls of Troy because he so hates him. Uh, okay, so Priam is the old king of Troy. Hector is uh, the real leader of Troy. And there's one other leader, one other Trojan we should know about. Ajax? No, he's a Greek, oh. actually, Ajax. Oh, oh And there sorry. are two Ajaxes in Greek. When we talk about <laughs> it, remind me, there are two uh, guys named Ajax. One is much better known than the other. But Excuse me, Gary? Them. Yes. It's um, two you up, have right? two minutes. Yep. We're going to stop right there, guys. And I'm going to, in my and notes. You had up to 10 people. Did we? Well, we yeah. did fairly well. Did fairly well. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Terry. And uh, next week, please read your story if you can. And we'll go over that. And uh, if you want to read Edith Hamilton Trojan War stuff, you can. We're going to work on that again a little bit next week. And uh, and then uh, who knows what we'll do. We'll, I haven't really decided, so I can't tell you. Uh, <laughs> this is a work in progress, you might say. But anyway, thank you all for coming. And we'll talk to you next yeah. week.